Welcome to Doctor Who A to Z, a show that covers everything Doctor Who from beginning to end, from 1963 to present, from Hartnell to Gatwa, from Auton to Zygon. Greetings, Whovians. Welcome to Doctor Who A to Z. My name is Alan. And I am Josh. And here we are going to talk about Doctor Who. We have a lot of stuff to cover this week. Before we jump into the story that we had already planned to review this week, which is the fifth Doctor story, Frontios. But before we get into that, my God, there's been a flurry of stuff happening this week. First of all, Russell T. Davies has hinted that he will be staying as showrunner for at least four seasons. I mean, if you're going to bring in somebody, they should have a lengthy stay. So, yeah, I agree. Sure. I mean, I have, again, we're, we're in it now. So we're in RTD part two. Yep. Uh, at least give them time to do stuff. So sure. Four seasons. Well, and I kind of feel like, you know, that's that's the pattern for the first time. And and he he described it as I've been convinced to stay. Like there wasn't a plan to stay that long, all you know. I don't, I don't, I don't think that he was ever going to not do that many. No, you're probably right. I mean, and that would indicate that they may have a contract for Shooty for those four seasons. Uh, obviously, and well, I'm sure we'll we'll get to this in a moment. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're getting the same amount of episodes for him, but <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, you know, and I do want to see some modern doctor go longer than three seasons. I would agree. I mean, I'm just tired of the three season pattern. Well, I mean, we can, we might as well just go into it now because in addition to this, he seemed to confirm that his seasons are going to be eight episodes long. Yes. And that, I guess, in as you pointed out, in the interest of keeping it on a yearly basis, I suppose that is fine. But it just seems like every time something happens, it's just less and less Doctor Who. And then eventually it's like, we'll get that one episode a year. Right. I could be happy you get that. No, exactly. I'm not going to be happy I get that. <laughs> For when seasons used to be full 50 week year long seasons. And they never gave Hartnell a vacation. Right. <laughs> Worked that man till he dropped to the ground. <laughs> but no, I mean, like, you know, we had at least a consistent, fairly much 13 episode seasons since the show came back. And that has slowly and surely dwindled over the years. Yeah. And, you know, well, OK, let's just jump into the the big article that had a lot of reveals because this is a big part of it. So. Um, the main thrust of the, the article that I read is that he confirmed that none of the anniversary specials will be on November 23rd. So that totally shoots down my prediction that they would happen over a three night period, 23rd, 24th and 25th. So that's clearly not going to happen. <laughs> that's OK with me. I don't care. Um, the rumor lately has been that it would be three consecutive Saturdays the 11th, 18th, and 25th. And so far, nothing, yeah, nothing has, has contradicted that so far. So in this article, there's a whole bunch of points that, that they make with him. And the first one is that he promises a flurry of Doctor Who content for years and years. And his quote is, 
If content is king, then we've got a right royal regal procession coming your way, so stand back. So clearly there's more than just the eight episodes happening. Okay. Okay. Maybe. But look, not to throw stones at this idea of (laughs) spinoffs. I mean, I'm a spinoff guy. I I love supplemental stuff, but, uh, you know, first and foremost, I'm here for Doctor Who. Yeah. I I don't want to have those resources taken that could have given me an extra couple episodes of Doctor Who to go fund a whole episode of, you know, freaking, I don't know. (laughs) I know Strax and the Pat Asher game running around and doing nonsense. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, again, it could be something good. It's just, you know, the last several times that we've gotten spinoffs, I've never, I mean, like Sarah Jane was fine is what it is, but I was never a big fan of Torchwood and never got in the class. So like they're not exactly batting well for spinoffs of Doctor Who to me. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, You know, who knows? I I do. I am excited about the possibility of that unit slash companions one. Other than that, you know, there has been a speculation about a, 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 an animated series that focuses like each episode. It's an anthology thing. Each episode is on a different villain, a different monster. And that might be fun. Who knows? Maybe, maybe. I mean, again, and I'm not opposed to yeah. spinoff. I, I just, I want it to be good. I, I agree. And, and I mean, like the unit one does seem like the obvious one. And that, that could be good. I mm-hmm. mean, like, uh, you know, uh, I mean. Especially um, if Osgood is in it. <sighs> I mean, now what I would find interesting is if you. I mean, obviously, it's hard to do this, but like a, a rotating cast of mm-hmm. you know, like you get a, a two series of two parters featuring, you know, like random old companion pairings like that could be interesting. Oh, to yeah. Me. Like, I got you no know, problem with that. Absolutely. I just I want a strong concept that can kind of stand on its own and be interesting. And I just they haven't really gotten to me yet. I don't know. But I'm an old fuddy daddy. So. <laughs> I mean, again, I, there's lots, like tons of big finish spinoff stuff that I like doesn't feature the doctor. I, I've yeah. got zero issues with it. I just you got to make it interesting and give me some interesting characters to go along with it. Yeah, I would totally. And I, I may have mentioned this on the show before. I don't remember, but I would love to see, you know, if we're t- going to talk about animated shows, I want to see a Dalek Empire show. I think that could be really good, especially if it was given the kind of. I mean, I don't know that what the budget is like, but if they had an animation treatment similar to some of the Star Wars things like um, Clone Wars or Bad Batch, I would love to see something like that. Hey, you and Nick Briggs, his ears just popped up as you mentioned that <laughs> right? from across the pond. I know. He's like, oh, yeah. Hey. He, he's ready to go. <laughs> um, about the specials, not none of them airing on the 23rd. RTD has said that the dates to look out for are November 1st, November 17th, and November 23rd, none of which are transmission dates for the special episodes. So November 1st, we know, is uh, when all the Doctor Who back content, the classic series, goes online on BBC iPlayer, including all that archival stuff that we talked about in last week's episode. So that explains November 1st. November 17th, I believe, is Children in Need. So there's got to be some special 
thing that they have shot for sure. for uh, for that. And over in twenty third, who knows? There could right. be anything. Uh, let's see. He has said that there will be two celebrity historical figures making appearances in the 14th Doctor specials, which I find interesting since none of the episodes seem to have a historical setting at all. So likely the, well, we don't know really much uh, at all about the second episode, but we know that it seems to be like space set, like futuristic. I mean, that could just be, you know, uh, MacGuffin. Throws it up could the be. Sense. They've, they've told us nothing about that episode. Exactly. And um, let's see. He did in this episode mention, quote, the sheer goddamn mystery of special two. So they're definitely keeping that one close to the chest. Davies playfully confirmed a crossover between Doctor Who and his earlier ITV drama, Nolly which I've no, I, I don't know anything about Nolly. Me neither. Yeah. So I don't know what to expect from that. Um, the new behind the scenes show Dr. Who unleashed will be popping up unexpectedly, very briefly, well before the first, uh, the first special is shown. So who knows? We should be seeing something from that very soon then, like in the next couple of weeks. Well, I mean, I think it's we just have to wait for the beginning of November, and then it'll probably it's gonna just all be hit. unleashed like a flood. Unleashed. <laughs> <laughs> so Davies mentioned the conditions that he laid down for coming back to the show, and he says, "quote I told them I wanted to number one make Doctor Who, number two make Doctor Who annually, number three create massive behind the scenes coverage." Four and five, he would not reveal what they were. And number six was to have the back catalog of Doctor Who ready and available. So that leads into the BBC iPlayer situation where the the the, the archive is going to be um, made available on iPlayer. And that leads us into another news story. Before we get to that, though, um, Davies has wondered back in July, did we do enough for the 60th? And then he came up with a new idea that quote will make you fizz, whatever the hell that means. But he says that it has three script writers behind it and was filmed in a studio during the second half of September. There has been rumors that there was something had happened that he Chibnall and Moffat co-wrote. So that seems to maybe confirm that. And who knows? That could be the children in need thing. I mean, like that feels like the children in yeah, need thing. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's gotta be. It's got to God, be. I swear, RTD man. I just every time I hear one of his, you know, pieces, he puts like a DWM. It's just like yeah. it's it's kind of almost heartening to see that the spirit of J and T lives on because it's just <laughs> absolutely ridiculous, right? They do Just have a lot in say common. Any, say anything to sell. Say right. anything to sell. Exactly. And always overpromise. And the last thing from that article is that he confirmed that uh, production is in full swing on series 15. And like 14, it'll have eight regular episodes and one Christmas special. And that five of the nine scripts for that year are already done. Now, the part where he was talking about doing four seasons that comes from a quote that he did in an interview where 
they asked him, it was at the, that big orchestral concert that they did a couple of weeks ago. And he said, he just raved about the music and said, oh, I wish we could be this bombastic and this loud all the time. And he says, I think I'll write an episode where there's no dialogue at all and it's all music. And he was like, I think, I think we'll have to do that in season four. And the interviewer said season four. And he said, yes, because there isn't any room for it already in season three. So season three is already planned out. Now, whether that means he's going to be active showrunner or, you know, I mean, his production company is in charge of Doctor Who, basically. So he will still be involved in it, whether he's the active showrunner or not, you know. So who knows? It can mean anything. Well, again, like if it gets us a yearly yeah. stuff with a semi-decent quality, then I guess I'm all for it. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, it really hasn't happened since he left. We have has we have had a couple of times where there were consecutive seasons from one year to another, but we have not been on an annual schedule in a long time. I wish, I really wish that we knew who was on his writing staff at this point in time. Me too. Really, that's that's really a make or break thing for me. Yeah. I mean, like I know. Uh, he is notorious for always rewriting everything. And basically he could have gotten a writing credit on every single one of the episodes that he ever made. <laughs> but I mean, obviously some were better than others. And I'm, I'm real interested to see if we're going back to an old will or we're digging a new one. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That's one of the things I'm most looking forward to. And we know a few directors but only for the three specials coming up, not yeah. anything to do with seasons 14 or 15. So it's going to be interesting to see. And then our last news story is this crazy nonsense going on with Anthony Coburn's son withholding the, uh, the first four part story collectively known as an unearthly child from the BBC archives. Nonsense. This man is certifiable no doubt i mean somebody with an axe to grind and then couching it in the name of trying to protect the legacy of his father or whatever claptrap that he's (laughs) going on about like i'm like like, you know what like if it was a legit thing it would be one thing but there's nothing about this that feels legit at all. Yeah. The man is a extremist conspiracy theorist type guy who is from all of this process seems to be quite racist and homophobic <laughs> and is doing whatever he can to try to stick one over on the woke BBC. It is an absolute adventure going through his Twitter I mean, the stuff that he says is one thing. The stuff that he retweets is off the chart (laughs) crazy. I mean, this man is, uh, he is deep in it. Yeah. I mean, I've never, never been able to comprehend British copyright laws. It's like so crazy to me on how it works out. Like there were so many people involved in that first story. Oh, yeah. And because I guess his name got put on as written by, like he gets mm-hmm. to control everything. That seems so weird to me. Well, I and mean, the fact that 
you know, the man's dead who wrote it. And now his son can just be like, oh, I'm going to do whatever I want now. Yeah, basically. And it was heavily rewritten by C.E. Weber. That's well known. Both of them were BBC staff writers. So I don't know what his copyright claim is to this thing when they were doing it under the employment of the BBC. Whereas Hussein, the director, said that he never even met Anthony Coburn. He dealt only with Verity and... um a couple of other ones and never had any involvement. And he himself rewrote some of the dialogue for the case. So I don't know what the claim is for this story. This is crazy. Oh man. Britain's weird. Britain's weird. <laughs> there you go. So that, unless you have something else that you can think of that wraps up our news for this week. And that was a lot of crazy. Yeah, stuff. That's a lot of stuff. I just, you know, we're, we're, we're getting close. We're getting close. And and more the closer we get, the more stuff uh, seems to want to to come out. Right on. I mean, other than you know, boy, they sure did put out a new Murray Gold theme. Oh, sure that's did. true. That's true. Two of them. We have the new arrangement for the for the show theme, and we have the new main motif for the Fifteenth Doctor. Both of which are, let's just say, bombastic. <laughs> It's like Murray Gold's been itching to do his Murray Goldness for several years now. He's back, baby, and he's not letting anything hold him back. Right. You know, what's interesting is that 15th Doctor theme. It, it just seems to borrow a lot from the 11th Doctor theme. You know, that dun, 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 bum, bum, bum. And it's basically, rhythmically, it's exactly the same, except that it's in 4-4 four, four instead of 7-8. So it adds an extra beat. But other than that, melodically, it's very similar. Rhythmically, it's almost identical. And it just feels so like we've done this before. I mean, some people, I'm just saying, some people might say that Marie Gold's music has always sounded the same. <laughs> Some people might say that. I don't know. <laughs> and so maybe some people wouldn't be surprised about this. <laughs> I would not be one of those people, but I I'm pretty sure I know somebody who would. <laughs> I just, man, I don't, I don't know what it is about that rearrangement of that theme song, but it's just, there's something about, and, it, and it's because Murray, God bless him, cannot go five seconds without throwing in some overblown choral arrangements in everything that he does. And now he's finally got his hands on the Doctor Who theme and added in those, you know, choral members into it. Right. Oh, Lord of mercy. <laughs> well, however long RTD stays, we can guarantee that much with Murray Golden as well. I mean, whatever. The theme yeah. theme changes, you know, with the times. It's fine. <laughs> I'm sure there are tons of people that hate, you know, that Seventh Doctor arrangement. Yeah. I get it. I I'm, I'm not just, that fond of it. <laughs> I mean, like, lots of people aren't. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's definitely a byproduct of his time. Yeah. And, I mean, like, as much as I love the Seventh Doctor era, like, it's it's not my favorite arrangement of the theme either. Right. So, you know, I mean, like... This too shall pass is all I'm going to exactly. say. Exactly. <laughs> it may take yeah. some time, but eventually. Maybe if pass. I just get my settings on my TV to downplay the background <laughs> music and up the dialogue, I'll be okay. But you know, 
it's a it's a show problem. It's not necessarily a Murray problem because in Jody's second and third seasons, Sagan's scores were cranked up to eleven also, and there were times when you just could not get any dialogue because See, it and it's just the way the show is made i think i think this is just a byproduct of murray gold because that's yes. the way that it was done during his era it was very bombastic and loud so you continue on doing the same way because that's what doctor who is in the 2000s well i swear and i, I have no evidence for this but i would guarantee you that after sagan's first uh, first season I loved it personally, and a lot of people did not. And I feel like somebody went to him and said, "Look, buddy, you got to murray this thing up. You got to, you got to be the. We, <laughs> very, we lost our possibly. golden boy. You got to be the new one." So, well, listen, like I, you know, I I watched that first story, and my biggest takeaway from that first story was like, number one, it was you know, Christian's best you know script to date which, you know, damning with fate praise, of course, but the fact that I was able to enjoy it because I didn't feel like I was being blown out of the water by the overstore yeah. arrangements, like, yeah. was very refreshing. I mean, like, that's like my big, my one comment, like, if I go back and look at my comments, like, from that time frame, like, on my social media history, yeah. like, the one comment about that first Chibnall episode is, oh my god, I love being able to watch Doctor Who without being blown away by the incidental music. Right. That was like my biggest comment about it. <laughs> That's so funny. And they certainly decided that it couldn't last. Yeah. Alright, let's get away from all the news, all the craziness so, of the world. Let's... You have something to actually talk about here? Yeah. <laughs> 20 minutes sure in? <laughs> we sure do. Uh, we have a story that you selected and Dead. we are jumping into the fifth doctor era this is 1984 peter davison's third season and this is frontios written by christopher h bidmead so why did you select this one for us to review mostly because after going back and we watched that 11th doctor story that kind of blow blew me away and not even really thinking about it i got to thinking like are there other stories that I'm kind of dismissive of that I haven't watched in a long time that I should go back and check? Yeah. And Frontios was one of them. Like this was a story that I don't think I've seen in 20 years. I don't think I've actually seen it since I had it on VHS and the, you know, <laughs> double tape box set with uh, the awakening, uh, the awakening. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, like, and when I busted out my DVD copy of it, it was still in shrink because I had not rewatched it, even though I had bought it, I had oh. not rewatched it. <laughs> um, and I mean, that DVD came out in 2011. Yeah. So uh, it has probably been since the early 2000s since I had watched mm. Frontios. And I am a big fan of what um, Chris B. Mead does. At least, you know, like the ideas that he has behind what he does like when he was, you know, mm -hmm. working on the show. And this is one that I just like really could not remember. I really had no memory of having any sort of like big impression on me. Okay. And so I said, well, you know what? Maybe I can find another nugget of gold now that I'm older and wiser. And let me tell you, I'm so glad that we did because... 
this is another hidden treasure to me. I yeah. love this story. And I totally get why it didn't make an impression on me the first time around. Like, you know, you're young and you're, you know, binging all the Doctor Who's you can, like you're first, you know, getting into it. And, you know, this one is, is not the flashiest of stories. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, like upon like first watching. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just it's not like a spectacular thing. But I think the story like what you bring into it and what you kind of like piece together from what you were given. Like if you actually, you know, are looking at it and recognizing like the, you know, the thematic elements and what, you know, is the story behind the story and, you know, what the story is implying rather than just outright saying, like you go in and you pay attention to that. Like, I think that raises the story up so much more than just a cursory viewing like that I had when I first saw it. Yeah. No, I agree. And and I think that when you talk about Bidmead and you talk about, you know, a writer with big ideas, you see an awful lot of that in this story. There is so much going on that I think all is is really interesting. You have the whole idea of this this species of wood grubs, basically, that just go around the universe and infest planets and have control over gravity, which is weird, but it's a cool idea. You've yeah. got the whole thing with Turlow and his race memory of these things. He's never encountered them, but he's digging up these this genetic memory of having his his planet ravaged by these things. And that's interesting. It's just so much good stuff in it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, when you're looking at Bidmead, like he's a very hard sciencey kind of guy. He yeah. is not one to to wave away with magic pixie dust anything. <laughs> and I, you know, that's that's the kind of Doctor Who that I, you know, am drawn towards. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really like the kind of stuff that he does. And I, again. Um, once you like get into the actual, you know, bits and, and parts of the story, like other than like, like at a cursory glance, this is, you know, kind of fairly traditional doctor who doctor lands on a planet. There is a monster there menacing some people. He works out what's going on, saves the day, drives the monsters off and leaves like that, that is a cursory mm -hmm examination of what happens here like it's, it's the same story that we've seen lots lots of times yeah but like all the little bits and pieces that uh, go into this like just the the idea of examining what humanity like the very edge of time is is holding on to like you know and trying to to scrap by like in its final days and looking at that and the way that society has devolved on frontiers here mm -hmm. uh, as they try to eke out a, an existence and then this idea of these monsters using dead bodies like there's a big yeah. body horror yeah. component to this that like I, you know obviously doesn't really get pulled off like great with a you know 1985 bbc <laughs> budget but like like the concept especially like the original concept that bibby wanted to do like it's horrific it's yes. such a great little idea like and it's it's like scary, but not too scary. It's just some wonderful ideas going into the world yeah. building in the story. Yeah. 
And when you talk about world building, I think what's interesting is to examine what we see of the planet Frontios, which is very little because the story is basically confined to one little, well, two pieces of the ship, one little area right outside of that, and then the underground passages. I think that the design work, because first of all, this is all studio. studio. So the stuff that takes place outside is, you know, in a studio and it's so well designed. Everything looks great. It's Absolutely. very convincing. Um, and I think that it's interesting when you get those little bits of the, the history of the ship, the crew and what they've been through. It's, it's, it's never really dwelt on, but you get just enough to give you a good sense of place. It gives you a good sense of what these people have had to undergo for all the, this time, which is a very short amount of time. They apparently have been there for about 10 years and mm -hmm. everything is devolved in that amount of time. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a cool concept. You get the whole thing with sort of the queen bee. The tractators are completely harmless except for the influence of their central figure, which in, in this case is called the Gravis. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting. Like how does a Gravis evolve? How right. does that happen? I, I really want to know more about this. Yeah. I mean, like, again, there's all sorts of ideas that we don't get fully explored, but I mean, like that's, 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 that's okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause like, like, again, he's throwing a lot of ideas out here. And like I said, he's not like, outright explaining any of them but like if, if you if you again you bring some extra work to the story like not even really extra work just extra context to the story like that you could kind of put in yourself like obviously the gravis he is structurally different from mm -hmm. the rest of them like he's got a nose and he looks different from all the rest of them so he stands out like it like a queen bee type of situation so obviously this is just the way that these species has developed i mean Mm -hmm. That's the way that, you know, they're, they're like insects. They, they do that. Like sometimes they have a, you know, driving force of a hive mind with, you know, a central figure into it. So, you know, knowing that helps make that make more sense. Um, yes. One of the big things that I always had a problem when I originally watched it, you know, as like a dumb kid who thinks he's way too smart for his own good <laughs> is like, you know, right off the bat, you, you're kind of dismissive, dismissive of this story because it's like the end of this episode one cliffhanger is that the TARDIS is destroyed. And you're like, that's just stupid because the TARDIS right. is destructible and you know, exactly. some, some fallen rocks on it are not going to destroy it. That's just <laughs> stupid. But like you actually pay attention to what's going on in the story and you bring some context to it. Like the, the doctor is saying things that like, have a lot of weighty context to it but i mean like it's not really being played for weighty context that the doctor is they are so far in the future that he's not supposed to go to like mm -hmm. way past to the end of time and he's so concerned with being found out by the time lords like i mean like and that's it's it's something that he's never really cares about but in this situation, he's yeah. he really cares about not wanting to be found out because evidently, like here at the end of time, like there's something like super important about maintaining it that he's not supposed to interfere. And so if you 
kind of take that context that they're so far in the future. And, you know, then also no, the knowledge that, you know, Bidmead wrote about what the TARDIS actually is, you know, the mathematical equations that, you know, bind it together. That, that's right from his stories. The fact that they're dealing in a situation that the doctor has never been in before, the TARDIS is not supposed to be in, that's causing stress on the TARDIS, plus yeah. the huge gravitational forces that are affecting the TARDIS before it even, you know, gets destroyed. Like it's, it's that gravity from the tractators. And, you know, you, you finally put all that together, then the, tar the TARDIS blowing up makes a lot more sense. And that's something that I completely missed on the first time I would have watched it 20 some odd years ago. Yeah, yeah. I, I still don't buy into it that easily simply because the interior is in a different dimension than the exterior. Yeah. I mean like uh, that's fine, but like I kind of look <laughs> at it as the, because they're so far into the future and the way the universe is, is happening in the light and the way that the TARDIS is being held together by its mathematics. And mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're at the far end of time where you're not supposed to go. And so maybe things aren't being held together like they're supposed to. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you could also look like he's if he's such a big idea of, you know, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be doing any intervention here. And the timeless would be really mad. Like, you know, you also could take the context of these whole fixed points in time that are causing yeah. an instability in the TARDIS. So, I mean, they, they Moffat yeah. brings that back. That's the, the TARDIS being destroyed in his season. So again, yeah. with a little bit of hindsight, a little bit of context, a little bit of filling in <laughs> with your own fan theories. And like, it makes perfect sense to me. And I makes it so much cooler to me. So what do you think of the tractators themselves? I, I mean, you know, I, I think they're fine. Like, I, I think obviously they're a good idea let down by, you know, they, they can't really pull the effect off. Like, cause the whole idea yeah. is they're supposed to be, you know, like, you know, wood louses and they yeah. are supposed to be able to curl up into a ball and do all sorts of movement. And the costume just can't do that. No, uh, I mean, like, I believe they had hired like a dance troupe to be the tractators with the idea that they would be able to curl themselves up into a, yes. a ball uh, yes. to make a really interesting visual. And the suits just wouldn't allow for that. So no, they got, they got these rigid costumes that were oversized and, and I think they look cool. Yeah. I think they are a very successful design. It's just that they don't work for what was scripted. Yeah. I mean, I, what I find fascinating about the tractators is that the way that the doctor reacts to them, because we've got a history in doctor who the doctor, you know, being sympathetic to, alien lives and alien values and things like that but like these guys are they're outright baddies like they're they're in the bad category at least the gravis is like yeah they're doing you know like dalek level type of conquest type of stuff and yet the doctor doesn't necessarily set out to just like destroy them there's not really any sympathetic parts to the gravis in this story at all and yet the doctor no. still you know like he spends like a whole episode like obviously like he's playing for time but you know he's acting buddy buddy with the gravis and they're discussing like all the things <laughs> and how like their technology works and what he's doing and like that that whole episode i think is phenomenal the, the yeah. way that he is you know playing the the gravis uh you know for time and things like that um it's some of davis's best work to be perfectly yes. honest oh uh, i agree 
and uh, it's just it's just kind of fascinating to watch because it's not he's not outraged at what they are doing which he could very well be like they're they're stealing people and turning them into machines that's something that you know other doctors would be completely outraged about but but he's not he's not really outraged but obviously he's looking for a solution which again it's more of an almost modern take on the doctor reaction Mm. to it i mean because again like Anytime that we get the doctor playing for sympathy with aliens, they're not being outright bad. They're more like misunderstood or they've, you know, they have a grievance. You know, the tractors don't have a grievance. They're conquerors. They're looking to just turn plants into starships and ride around to find more planets to conquer. Yeah. So one could say that, you know, following the insect slash wood grub kind of uh, uh, idea is that they're following instinct. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily like, the Daleks, because of the way that they're programmed by Davros, make a decision to do these things. And, you know, maybe the doctor is thinking that's not really what's going on here. They're just following instinct. I mean, it's an intelligent, there's an intellect behind it because the Gravis is definitely a sentient being and definitely a reasoning being. And he, I guess the, the, you know, he could choose a different path, but I think he's just driven by instinct. I mean, like potentially, I mean, that's a good way for the doctor to kind of be objective about it. But I mean, like he does seem, I mean, I don't know. Cause when he starts talking to the Gravis, like the Gravis is making a big deal. Like he's trapped and he wants to mm-hmm. get off. And boy, when he hears about that TARDIS, he's like, Oh <laughs> buddy, we got a TARDIS around here somewhere. Let me get some of that TARDIS. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, he could also, I mean, like, again, you know, you're putting a little bit of context, like those are uh, the fear of being stranded in one place and not have that freedom to go. That's like a central fear for yeah. the doctor. And maybe yes. he's like, well, maybe oh, yeah. I'm looking towards them a little more favorably because of that. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Okay. Let's jump into the companions because we are in the run-up to Turlo leaving. And this is the first story where we start getting some, a little bit of history about him. We start to learn a little bit more about him. I mean, we got like, you know, tastes of it in his first story, Modern Undead, and, you know, here and there, but not a whole lot. This is the first one where we're starting to get some actual definition for Turlo, where he's from, uh, and you know, we start, we see a little bit more of that in the next couple of seasons, uh, the next couple of stories leading up to his final one, where we get a big, like everything we ever want to know about Turlo is in one story. But this is the first time where we start to get a real insight into who he is and why he is. And I really think it's fantastic. I completely agree. Like I love Turlo and I'm, I'm pretty sure we talked yeah. about this a little bit, but when we talked about resurrection, you know, several episodes ago, but yeah. um yeah so i mean this is marks a big turning point because this is at one point like obviously to this point like turlo has never been somebody who you know wants to put himself out there like he, he's been characterized as, as cowardly from time to time especially during his first appearances and he's been kind of just been around but here when he's has his breakdown uh from encountering yeah. the tractators tra- uh, and uh, like is driven almost crazy and the fact that he like fights back against that and he has a moment yep. where he says, I'm tired of being the coward and I've got to go back down there. Like that, that's like the huge turning point for Turlo. And we'll see a couple more bits of that for him over the next several episodes. 
mm-hmm. as he becomes more proactive in trying to fight against his inner cowardly nature. I think is great character work. Um, yeah. Strixen, I think maybe kind of overdoes it just a tad bit on you know his reaction, but I mean like. Obviously, he's finally getting something to do with Turlo, and he wants to make the most of it. So he's gonna just take that scenery and chew it for all it's worth. But yeah. um, like, I, I think it it works well because even though like, it's kind of over the top when he's having his reaction, the the way mm-hmm. that it then contrasts with how he pulls himself together, I, I think is great character work for Turlo. When you think back to the very beginning of his journey with the doctor and, uh, you know, they're, he's going to travel with the doctor and they're like, well, where do you want to go? Do you want to take you home? And he's like, oh no, there's nothing for me there. When you get to his, his final story, planet of fire, that's what he wants. He wants to go home. He wants to reconnect with his people. And I think this is where you start to see that change in him. This is the thing that sort of, this is the catalyst for him to be homesick to want to go back to where he came from yeah no i I think that's absolutely i love it i love it too. i think that i i've always liked turlo a lot me too even though they just never really did that much with him and they could have done so much more but after that first trilogy of stories where he is you know well we we should get into that at some point Mm -hmm. but after that it's it's almost like they just didn't know how to do anything with him and they finally decided that in the lead up to him departing. Yes. I mean, like it, it, the show often seem to forget that Trello isn't human and right. The right. times that it remembers that he's not, I think are the best times that they get used out of him. Yeah. And I think this is probably the best, like, um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? The 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 best um, cooperation is not the right word. Oh, I'm having a, it's been one of those days. But it, but but this this is the best showing of his relationship with Tegan because uh, mm. Tegan in the story is not overly caustic or sarcastic or mean to him like she is in so many stories. True. Um, True. They. I mean, like they, I think they really uh, like. I really like Tegan in the story. Because mm-hmm. I think it gets the core of her character without being a caricature like she sometimes can fall into. Yeah. And, and so and I, I think that, you know, she is great with all of her interactions with everybody else. And again, this is the best uh, story I think we get between her and Turlo. Like, obviously, they're companions. They're, they're hanging out together at the start of the story. And she's not, again, as I said, not being overly mean or sarcastic towards them the entire time. Like she is in so many of the other stories. Uh, so I, I really like the interplay that the whole crew has together in the story. Yeah. And I'm going to say, thinking specifically of Tegan, we're in the middle of a really strong run of uh, stories for her, mm-hmm. the awakening, this one and her final one, Resurrection of the Daleks, I think are are three of the best Tegan stories there are. She's she's treated like a character. Right. As you say, she she could be something of a parody at times and something of a, and it never had anything to do with her. It was it was the way that her character was written. Like she's the bitchy one. She's the argumentative one. And sometimes they went a little too far with that. And I feel like she's a a a three-dimensional fleshed out character Mm -hmm. 
in these three stories. Absolutely. Awakening, Frontios, and Resurrection. I think that those are, and of course, with her leaving in Resurrection, it's, you know, at least she leaves on a good run, just like right. Turlo does. So I think this season is really getting its companions really right. Right. I mean, like, is you, I think a lot of time with Tegan, you know, they write her like, it's almost like she doesn't want to be there. But in this story, she yes. wants to be there. She wants, she's proactively wanting to go help the people on the planet. She's proactively, like, when she finds out, like, there's something fishy going on with the disappearing people and starts nosing around to, to find out. Uh, I mean, I, I think this is a great uh, example of how Tegan should have been written uh, on a more consistent basis. Yeah, but I, I find that in Awakening, too. I mean, their their whole premise of how Awakening unfolds is that they go back to visit her, her uh, Andrew Varney, whatever he was, grandfather. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. Um, and you know, that's the impetus of the story, but it's not like she, like if this had happened in her first season or two, then when she's home with Andrew Varney, she would have stayed yeah. because she didn't want to Absolutely. be in the TARDIS. And here they are in her modern, her, her native time visiting her family. And she's not crying out to leave the TARDIS. So at the end of the adventure, they just carry on with other things because she's had her visit yep. and that's all re she really wanted. And I, I, I really enjoy that. I like seeing companions. I mean, this sounds so trite, but I like seeing companions when they want to be exactly. there, when they want to be involved in the story. And sometimes <laughs> for like two whole seasons, that was not her. Right. I mean, like, and you get the impression that the TARDIS crew likes each other in the story, which so much yeah. of this era, like... They just were not written like they like each other at all. <laughs> and, you know, with uh, with Nissa having left, you know, she you could tell how close that Nissa and Tegan mm -hmm. were. And both of them sort of had a strong distrust of Turlo. And I think we've come to a point now where Nissa has been gone long enough that Tegan resists forming that bond with Turlo, but I think it's kind of, you know, worn off with time sure. a little bit. And she's gotten to that point now where they are friends and they have become, you know, reliable to each other. And he's almost the new Nyssa for her. Yeah, no, I definitely can see that. Absolutely. And again, good to see them actually working together and liking being around each other during the course of the story. Yeah. If only we'd had more of this. <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and I say that as somebody who generally really likes the Fifth Doctor era. Me too. And and I do enjoy some of the bitchy mm -hmm. dynamic that we get amongst the, the companions in this uh, in this era. Because I, I don't think you have to have people who get along all the time. And I, and I enjoy, I love Tegan. Mm -hmm. I love that she's, you know, just not the most cheerful and chipper person that you could travel with. Right. And I like how that affects everything. But at the same time, you know, I feel like when, when you get this kind of story where Tegan and Turlow are sort of paired up together and have a, at least a little bit of a bond, I feel like it's so hard one. You know what I mean? Like you, you feel like as a viewer, you've been waiting for this and they finally got to that point and it means something, you know? Absolutely. I am. I mean, again, this is. I mean, we can move on to the doctor as well, like to completing yeah. our, our our crew here, because, boy, you know, I I generally 
really like Davison's portrayal of the doctor, but like, it's such a shame to me that I feel like in this season, he's finally figured out how he wants to play the fifth doctor. And then he turns around and leaves because like yeah. between this story and like caves, like, Oh my God, mm -hmm. like this is the fifth doctor that we would want to see. He's, he's not just, you know, being like crotchety old man in a young man's body or, you know, just kind <laughs> of like, standing around like as everything happens around him like he is has all those characteristics but he's also being proactive um but you know clever and you know thinking on his feet as he you know works mm -hmm. out a way to buy time and figure out what's going on like this is probably i think along with caves like my favorite portrayal on tv of the fifth doctor yeah I still lean toward snake. Well, yes, I mean, we're gonna we'll I, talk about my rating for this. I'm gonna like I've got a like a holy trinity of fifth doctor stories that may have to be revised after this story. Uh, going back to it, okay. The snake dance <laughs> is there, I, so I, I I absolutely love snake I do dance, too. and I think I do that too. it is. I think that it is Davison's best performance. I, I mean, like I I agree with you, and of course it's been a while since I've seen Snake Dance. I want to get back to that one as well, but uh, like the, the, yeah. this is getting up there because I mean, I, I mean, we can. Everybody always points to you know um, uh, Caves as like his best caves. performance, which I mean, I'm not going to. And it wait. is. I mean, it really is. It's really really good. Yeah. I mean, like, Very and good. obviously, like my my top three stories as traditionally would always be to point out to, to Caves and Snake Dance. Uh, State Dance probably being above my favorite. And I always rated that very highly. And then probably like mm -hmm. the Kinda, again, I like the, you know, the way that mm -hmm. story works. I like him in that story a lot. But yeah. um, so those would be the ones I would have always gone to. Like, yep, those are my absolute favorite Fifth Doctor stories. But I think this is creeping in. Like, and I think a lot of it has to nice. do with the way that his portrayal of the Doctor is in the story. I just, I love him so much in here. Again, like he, yeah. he is, does not, come off as being annoyed like a lot of times he does like it was always kind of a go-to like he just always feels like he's bothered to be there here like right. i mean like and he could have easily have been like the tardis has been destroyed for all that he knows he could have been very sulky and very irritable but yet he doesn't he knows there's something going on on this planet he's got it he's going to figure out why and he's going to help these people um and, yeah. and goes around still being the fifth doctor but being very proactive and you know quick decisions and it's it works mm -hmm. really well and it's just a shame yeah. we did not get more stories with this fifth doctor in it agreed agreed all right so how about we rate yeah, it yeah we can go ahead and do that let's do it um i think oh man i was gonna say an eight i want to go to an 8.5 i don't know if i'm gonna i mean like again without having to go back and revisit i mean like i still think that you know, it's it's hard to go against caves and snake dance, but I mean, this is gonna keep up there. I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna go eight point five. I was gonna go eight. I'm going mm. to an eight point five. I I enjoyed it that much. Okay, where, where does just out of curiosity, where does enlightenment fall in that scale? Oh, it's very close. I oh, love man. enlightenment a lot too. Man, I'm telling you, that's up in my upper echelon of Fifth Doctor stories too. So yeah, I think eight and a half. Man, that's exactly where I fall on this one. I, you know, I, I think I mentioned in last week's episode that I had just rewatched this one a couple of months ago and was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. 
because I don't think I'd seen it since, you know, uh, however many, many years ago and had always sort of liked it, but it never was the resurrection. It was never the caves. It was never the snake dance. So I never really, and I'll tell you uh, another one that's in my top tier fifth doctor stories is awakening. I mm -hmm. absolutely love it. But I think Frontios not being any of those stories has always been sort of like, you know, just sort of pushed down a little bit just because of the weight of all those other huge successes as far as I'm concerned. But uh, a couple of months ago when I watched it again, I was like, dude, this is really good. This is yeah. a solid story, a solid production. Everything about it works. The design work. I mean, I didn't mention this earlier, but there are times when they sort of shoot a, a this this little studio you know, configuration, but they expand it with matte paintings to make it look so much more expansive and so much broader. And it works amazingly. And I just, man, I tell you, I've got a whole new love for this story. I, I mean, like, I have to agree. Like, and I don't understand why it doesn't seem to have a better reputation than what it does. Like, I, mean, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say anything bad about it, but I never really think I've heard anybody like sing its praises either. Right. And it really surprised me because, I mean, again, everybody always goes to, you know, the Mara stories being great. Yep. It goes to caves, but nobody really ever talks about this as being the top echelon. Yep. But it just is. It's got so many great ideas in it. I mean, again, Vidme is just such a great big ideas guy. Yes. Um, and I mean, there's stuff that we didn't get a chance to really even talk about. Like, I love the inversion where it's like you're expecting to be invaded from outer space with the, you know, the rocks being drawn on them. But True. The, the, the twist being that they're under the ground and pulling the rocks down. So they're really being invaded from below. It's yeah. Great, you know, like inversion of yes. the tropes that we would come to expect. Um, I love the fact that it would have been so easy to paint like this authoritative, like, you know, military leadership on this planet as being like this complete corrupt and, you know, something that, that are just getting away with, mm -hmm. but it's not like, it's obviously they're just doing what they are trying the best that they can to do to survive. And that means that they're having to be a hard line and ration and nobody likes it, but that's like, they're yeah. under this bombardment. They don't have any resources. They're like the last of humanity. What else can they do? And it could have been so easy to turn the leadership of this planet into, you know, pantomime mm -hmm. villains that got dispatched easily by, you know, the monsters during the course of the story. So they could bring in a whole new regime of, yeah. you know, yeah. for peace and love, but they don't do that. Like they kind of come to a consensus and then they think, they, they thank the doctor like, Oh, now that we've gotten rid of this, like we can go back to being what we are supposed to be. Yeah. Like love that idea. Oh, it's just so no, many great ideas in the story. You're right. You know, we never really even talked about the the colonists or the the portrayal, the characterizations of these people is is so much more complex than we normally would get in mm -hmm. this kind of story. And none of them at the end of the story are who we think they are when the story right. starts. They all go through a bit of a change and and it's all because of the situation that they're in. And, and I think it's so well done and the cast is just fantastic. I think that everything about this is just a great, great, great production. So I might be talking myself up to a nine. I don't know. I'm man. telling you, it's so good. I mean, I, so good. I think it is worth of being and And it's so crazy to me because I, you know, I've never been super high on season 21 stories. I mean, other than everybody saying the case being the outlier, but I think this is, is right there with it. And it just, I, it's just unfortunate that 
like season 21 just gets dismissed all the way out right because you've got where's the deep right up front and right. that story is just so bad it like taints the rest of the season <laughs> okay is it though is that one that um, we should revisit sometime we just might to have see to if we should reevaluate it look i'm there's sorry a lot of good stuff in that story i mean like it's got a great last line i'm gonna give it that much yeah but I mean, you can't have Ingrid Pitt <laughs> kick in a pantomime horse and come out being a good I story. Know. Hey, I said there's a lot of good stuff. I <laughs> there is also a lot of bad stuff in it. So <laughs> uh, there's a lot of bad stuff. We'll, we'll have to talk about it one of these days. Yep. All right. So I think I'm just going to split the difference, and I'm going to call mine an eight point seven five. So okay, good enough. All right. So, I, I'm I'm going with an eight point five with the right to turn it up to a nine if I have to reevaluate my other top yeah. games and stories. Cool. All right, so we will be back next week. We are we are jetting down the road to the 60th anniversary. So we're doing just like this is the first Turlo story that's leading up to his exit. Next week, the first story leading up to the 60th anniversary, we're going to be talking about the three doctors an absolute classic an iconic story our 10-year anniversary story i'm telling you i can't wait that's a good one well jury's out on that we'll figure oh, we'll find out dude, i mean <laughs> i mean you you've got to set aside you know and look at the actual story other than like yeah, the fun part of, of having trout and pertwee together that's always going to be fun um is that enough to carry the story i don't know we'll find out next week all right. So I hope everybody joins us to find out. Till then, take care, enjoy your TARDIS travels, and we will see you next time. Be seeing you. Thanks for listening to Doctor Who A to Z. You can find episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, and other podcast networks. Theme remix used by kind permission of Doctor Who composer Dominic Glenn. We'd love to hear from you, so please drop us a line at Z at gmail or leave a comment wherever you're listening. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe and consider leaving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. See you next time, and until then, remember, we're all stories in the end. Just make it a good one.